Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 167 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up this week, we begin in Scotland with news of a data breach at HIV Scotland, leading to them getting a £10,000 penalty from the ICO. We then travel down to Cambridge in the UK, where the Centre for Computing History has had a data breach. And we then travel over to Italy, where a data breach has revealed details of hundreds, if not thousands, of Italian celebrities. We then travel out to Thailand, where the Thai data breach has exposed details of tourists for the last 10 years. So if you've been to Thailand, or you know someone who has, in the last 10 years, then please get them to have a listen to that article. We then return to Europe and to Luxembourg, where Amazon has appealed its record GDPR penalty. And we then travel out again to the Far East, but this time to Taiwan, where Acer Taiwan has had a data breach just days after, of course, there was a large data breach at Acer India, which we reported in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We then travel to America and first of all to Delaware, where a Delaware court has ruled in favour of Marriott Hotels in a class action raised after the large data breach they had there, which got them a very high penalty from the ICO some months ago. And then remaining in the US, we travel to Maryland, where Sinclair Broadcast Group have had a data breach, which has affected a number of US TV stations, including WZTV. And we then travel to Nevada, where the University Medical Center of South Nevada has had a data breach. And then we have a story affecting 10 US states, which has affected data belonging to dental patients whose data was held by the dental technology provider. We then travel to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia has just introduced PDPL, their equivalent to GDPR, so we look at what the similarities are and where the differences lie. And then finally this week, we have an update on the EU standard contractual clauses. So as always, a mixed bag of articles for you this week. We hope that you find the articles useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we act upon your suggestions for improvements to the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. We begin this week in Scotland with news that HIV Scotland, a HIV charity, has been fined £10,000 after the charity sent out an email containing the personal details of dozens of people. The data breach involved an email to 105 people, including patient advocates representing people living in Scotland with HIV. All of the email addresses were visible to recipients, and 65 of the addresses identified people by name. The data breach, which happened in February, has now been investigated by the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, who have issued a £10,000 penalty. The ICO said an assumption could be made about an individual's HIV status or risk from the personal data disclosed. HIV Scotland is a charity that runs projects aimed at preventing the disease and raising awareness about it. It also offers support in getting treatment for those affected. New Interim Chief Executive at the charity, Alistair Hudson, said the charity took full responsibility and apologised unreservedly to anyone who had been affected by the data breach. The ICO said its investigation of the incident in February this year found shortcomings of the Glasgow-based charity's email procedures. These included inadequate staff training, incorrect methods of sending bulk emails and an inadequate data protection policy. 
It also found that despite HIV Scotland's own recognition of the risks and the procurement of a more secure system for bulk messages, it was continuing to use the less secure method seven months later. Ken MacDonald, head of ICO Regions, said, All personal data was important, but the very nature of HIV Scotland's work should have compelled it to take particular care. This avoidable error caused distress to the very people the charity seeks to help. Mr Hudson from HIV Scotland said a new team and board of trustees had taken robust steps to improve information security. He said, for a small charity, financially, I cannot deny that this is a heavy blow. However, we will find a way to pay the £10,000 fine to the ICO. As an organisation, HIV Scotland would like to reiterate its commitment to providing a safe and supportive space where our stakeholders and networks can contribute to better health and well-being for those impacted by HIV and improving sexual health for all. Now, I think that this new penalty is particularly significant because the incorrect use of CC in emails to reveal the email details of people who you don't have permission to reveal their email address is probably the second most common data breach that we come across in all of our dealings with over 150 organisations across the UK and overseas. And it's so simple to put right. Just train your staff to use BCC rather than CC. It really is a 30-second fix, which in this case, a 30-second fix could have saved them £10,000. That's a pretty expensive 30 seconds. I wish there was an easy guide to GDPR. Just go to gdprmakesimple.club. To Northern Ireland now, and in some ways, a breach of GDPR very similar to the one we just covered for HIV Scotland. The Labour Relations Agency in Northern Ireland has apologised for sharing email addresses and in some cases names of more than 200 of its service users. The agency deals confidentially with sensitive labour disputes between employees and employers. But when it attempted to email 213 clients, it made their email addresses visible to all the way out of the recipients. All the clients had used the agency's early conciliation programme. The Labour Relations Agency has confirmed it is now preparing a report for the Information Commissioner's Office. In a statement, the Labour Relations Agency said that on the 19th of October, customers were invited by email to complete a customer satisfaction survey, but that recipients of the survey should have been blind copied, and we apologise unreservedly that on this occasion they were not. This survey was issued manually, whereas in future it will be automated, it added. That would mean that every individual would get a separate email, and therefore this cannot happen again. The surveys were sent in batches according to the customer category, so employees and employers did not receive the same email. No other customer information was included, the agency said. The agency said it had issued an apology to recipients and was currently awaiting further instructions from the Information Commissioner's Office. If we receive any update on this from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Cambridge in the UK now and the Centre for Computing History, the CCH, has apologised for an embarrassing breach in its online customer data file, although no payment card information was exposed. The Centre for Computing History, which is a museum for computers and video games, said it was notified that a unique email address used to book tickets via its website had subsequently received a phishing email that looked to have come from HSBC. In a letter to visitors from Jason Fitzpatrick, the CEO and trustee at CCH, dated the 19th of October, he said, Our investigation has revealed that our online customer data file has been compromised and email addresses contained within are now in the hands of spammers. The museum was keen to point out that credit card details, financial information and passwords are not handled by the websites and were not caught up in the leak. It's understood that the information exposed includes names and email addresses and the names of the product or event that was purchased. 
Mr Fitzpatrick went on to say, We take security and your data extremely seriously, but sadly no online system can claim to be 100% secure and we have been caught out. However, we have immediately made updates to our security system and blocked the way in which the data was accessed. The ICO said it was aware of the breach, having been informed yesterday, and is currently processing the notification. The museum said that although no financial information was unwittingly exposed, customers should remain on the lookout for dodgy emails from fraudsters. Like all museums, of course, the CCH is not in the best place at the moment, having suffered from lack of visitors during the periods of lockdown, and it hasn't managed to increase the number of events held on site that contributed to around half of the museum's annual revenue. Concluding his statement, Fitzpatrick said, We are treating this extremely seriously and have acted immediately to ensure the website is patched and secure again. He added, Whilst no online system is 100% secure, it is still of great embarrassment to us and we apologise unreservedly. To Italy now, and the Italian Data Protection Authority, Durante per la Protezione dei Dati Personali, GPDP, has announced an investigation into a data breach of the country's copyright protection agency. Society Italiana degli Autori ed Editori, SLAE, is a government agency responsible for protecting interest creative works. Yesterday, the GPDP announced that they are investigating whether hackers stole the personal data of registered members and employees of SIAE during a ransomware attack. In the statement, GPDP said, In relation to the data breach suffered by SIAE, the guarantor for the protection of personal data informs that it has opened an investigation. The Italian Society of Authors and Publishers had yesterday notified the authority within the terms set by the privacy legislation of the violation of its service due to a hacker attack for extortion purposes. The guarantor is currently evaluating the information received from the company, reserving the right to carry out appropriate investigations. We approached SIAE for a statement, but they declined to give one at the present time. However, it is known that 60 gigabytes of stolen data from SIAE has now appeared for sale on the dark web. The data leaked by the Everest gang on the dark web includes national ID and driver's license scans and documents relevant to contract agreements between SIAE and its members. The Everest gang claims that the stolen data contains contracts and other data related to Italian celebrities, actors, musicians, artists, authors and reputable creators in general. As SIAE is the sole royalties collector in Italy, every creator in the country has a registration on the compromised platform. It's understood that after not receiving a ransom payment, the threat actors are now selling the data on the dark web for $500,000. The SIAE has issued instructions to its members that they should stay vigilant against incoming solicited communications and phishing attempts. If we receive any update on this, we will transmit to you an episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Thailand now, and the personal details of more than 106 million international travellers to Thailand were exposed via an unsecured database that was accessible without a password. Based on the evidence contained within the database, it's been surmised that any foreign visitor to Thailand over the previous 10 years may have had their information exposed in the incident. It's understood that the database was said to have included full names, passport numbers, arrival dates, residency status and visa type. Upon discovery of the database, Thai authorities were immediately notified and the data was secured the following day. Although Thai authorities responded quickly to the disclosure of the database, it's not clear how long the database has been available on the dark web. If we receive any update from, this, from the Thai authorities, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I wish was an easy guy to GDPR. Just go to GDPRMakeSimple.club. 
If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll probably remember that back in episode 155, we brought you news that the Luxembourg Data Protection Authority had fined Amazon a record 746 million euros. Luxembourg's National Commission for Data Protection, CMPD, found Amazon processed data in breach of GDPR following a probe sparked by complaints from French privacy rights group La Trois-Tours de Net. But Amazon denied any wrongdoing and said no customer data had been exposed to any third party. It added that CMPD's findings were without merit. It's perhaps no surprise, therefore, that this week Amazon have appealed the fine and the appeal has been lodged at the Luxembourg Administrative Tribunal. There's currently no date set for the appeal hearing to begin, but we expect that it will take several months. We will obviously keep you updated on any news on this story right here on the GDPR Witch Show. Last week we brought you news of a data breach at Acer in India, and this week Acer Taiwan has fallen victim to cyber attack. On Saturday, Desdorden hackers announced that they'd managed to obtain login details belonging to employees of Acer's Taiwanese branch. In an email, the hacking group stated it breached the tech giant system in order to prove that Acer is way behind in its cybersecurity efforts on protecting its data, describing the company as a global network of vulnerable servers. Asia's Malayan and Indonesian branches could potentially also fall victim to an attack, with their Jordan stating that their servers are vulnerable too. The hackers attached the table displaying employee logins and passwords to some of Asia's Taiwanese servers. Des Jordan said it did not steal the data that was stored on the server and only took data pertaining to Asia employee details. Right after the breach, we informed Asia management on the Taiwan server breach and Asia has since taken the affected server offline, the hackers said. An Acer spokesperson confirmed that no customer data had been obtained this time. We have recently detected an isolated attack on our local after-sales service system in India and a further attack in Taiwan, they said in a statement. Upon detection, we immediately initiated our security protocols and conducted a full scan of our systems. We are notifying all potentially affected customers in India, while the attack Taiwan system does not involve customer data. The incident has been reported to local law enforcement and relevant authorities and there's no material impact to our operations and business continuity. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll know that we have mentioned the Marriott data breach, which led to them getting a multi-million fine from the UK ICO. If you want to catch up on the Marriott data breach, we previously mentioned it in episodes 48, 51, 74, 85, 86, 103, 105, 109, 115 and 116. Well this week things took a step forward in the US and particularly in Delaware where the Delaware Court of Chancery dismissed the Marriott data breach derivative lawsuit. On October the 5th, 2021, the Delaware Court of Chancery dismissed a derivative breach of fiduciary duty claims against Marriott's executives and directors, finding that the statute of limitations on some of the claims had lapsed and that the plaintiff had failed to adequately plead demand futility because none of the director defendants faced a substantial likelihood of liability for an unexcolpated breach of fiduciary duty claim. The case arose out of the 2018 data breach of Marriott Starwood System, which, as I say, we've mentioned many times here on GDPR Weekly Show. After obtaining documents from Marriott pursuant to a, to a Section 220 books and records demand, the plaintiff filed a derivative complaint alleging that the company's directors and several of its officers breached their fiduciary duties by failing to conduct adequate due diligence, failing to implement adequate controls, and conceding the data breach between September and November 2018. 
Prior to filing the lawsuit, the plaintiff did not make a litigation demand on Merit's Board of Directors and instead argued that the demand was excused on the primary basis that most of Merit's directors faced a substantial likelihood of personal liability. Rejecting the plaintiff's arguments, Vice-Chancellor Laurie W. Will dismissed the claims, concluding that none of the Merit Director defendants faced a substantial likelihood of personal liability upon any of the plaintiff's theories. First, the court found that any claims based on directors' failure to conduct adequate diligence prior to its 2016 acquisition of Starwood were time-barred by a three-year statute of limitation. Next, the court rejected the plaintiff's arguments that directors faced liability under Caremark for failing to implement and oversee adequate internal controls to address Starwood's allegedly severely deficient information protection systems. On the contrary, the court found that, that the board a had routinely apprised itself of cybersecurity risks and mitigation, provided with annual reports on the company's enterprise risk assessment that specifically evaluated cyber risks and engaged outside consultants to improve and auditors to audit corporate cybersecurity practices, and B, was never given notice that Marriott was in violation of any laws or regulations regarding data security, and C, addressed concerns regarding Starwood's data security standards when they learned of them. Finally, the court rejected the plaintiff's contention that the board concealed the data breach in violation of state law, finding that the applicable state law has only mandated timely disclosure of data breaches where personal information had been accessed. Though the board learned that Starwood systems had been compromised by malware in September 2018, it did not learn any personal information had been accessed until 10 days prior to disclosing the breach, a time period which the court deemed to be not an obvious violation of notification laws that suggested bad faith on the part of the board. If we have news of any further legal action against Marriott, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Remaining in America and Sinclair Broadcast Group, the Hunt Valley, Maryland-based company which owns and operates 21 regional sports networks and owns and operates or provides services to 185 television stations in 86 markets, announced that it had suffered a data breach and was still working to determine what information the data contained. Sinclair Broadcast Group said it started investigating potential security incident on Saturday last week and on Sunday identified certain servers and workstations that were encrypted with ransomware. It also found that certain office and operational networks were disrupted. It says that data has also been taken from the company's network, but it does not know yet quite what was contained in that data. One of the television stations affected, Nashville, Tennessee's WZTV, put out a notice on its website on Monday about serious technical issues at the TV station affecting its ability to stream content. We are also currently unable to access our email and your phone calls to the station, it said. Sinclair Broadcast Group said it's taken measures to contain the incident and its forensic investigation is ongoing. However, the company said that the data breach has caused and may continue to cause disruption to parts of its business, including certain aspects of local advertisements by local broadcast stations on behalf of its customers. The company said it's working diligently to restore operations quickly and securely. Sinclair Broadcast Group said it currently can't determine whether or not the data breach will have a material impact on its business operations or financial results. If we get any further update on this from Sinclair Broadcast Group, we will talk speak to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The University Medical Centre of Southern Nevada revealed this week that it had suffered a cyber attack on June the 14th and 15th this year. The cyber attack allowed the perpetrator to access sensitive information, including social security numbers, insurance information, medical records such as diagnosis and test results, 
and other personal information. A spokesperson for the medical centre apologised for any effect the data breach may have on its patients and said that any concerned patients should contact it for further information. I wish there was an easy guide to GDPR. Just go to gdprmakesimple.club. A cyber attack on the vendor of a network of dental practices may have exposed the data of tens of thousands of patients. A cyber criminal used a phishing attack to gain access to the computer systems of North American Dental Management between March the 31st and April the 1st this year. The Pittsburgh-based North American Dental Management provides administrative and technical support services for Professional Dental Alliance offices. Professional Dental Alliance notified patients that an unauthorised individual may have accessed some of their protected health information after the security breach. The information that may have been exposed was stored in email accounts that the attacker could breach. In a statement, PDA affiliate Grove Dental Associates said, Professional Dental Alliance was recently notified that a few email accounts of its vendor, North American Dental Management, containing some limited patient information were accessed by an unauthorised person during March 31st and April 1st, 2021, as a result of an email phishing incident. At this time, the identity of some individuals is known, but the vendor's investigation is ongoing. After discovering the breach, North American Dental Management took steps to secure the compromised email accounts and launched an investigation. PDA says that it has not found any evidence of any actual misuse of personal information and that its investigation of the matter indicates the attack was limited to email credential harvesting. The bad actor did not access PDA's electronic dental record or dental images, they said. However, the Alliance found that some sensitive personal information may have been present in the compromised email accounts. In a statement, Grove Dental Associates said, The full extent of the potentially affected personal information is not yet known and will vary between persons, but it may include name, address, email address, phone number, dental information, insurance information, social security number and or financial account numbers. The breach has been reported to the Office for Civil Rights, impacting 125,760 patients in Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, New York, Texas and Tennessee. PDA is offering complimentary credit monitoring and identity theft services for two years for anyone who may have been affected. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. One of the latest countries to announce data protection laws along the same lines as GDPR is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, KSA, who have now published the Personal Data Protection Law, PDPL, which is their first national general data protection law. Much of PDPL will be recognisable to people familiar with GDPR. For example, PDPL uses GDPR-inspired terminology such as personal data, processing, controlling entity and processing entity. However, there are important differences too between PDPL and GDPR. And like GDPR, PDPL contains sanctions which can include criminal action as well as civil action. Businesses have been given a grace period of one year from the effective date of PDPL, which is the 23rd of March 2022, to get compliance. That means enforcement will commence on 23rd of March 2023. It's important to note that the law anticipates further implementing regulations to be published in advance of the effective date. The authority responsible for overseeing and enforcing PDPL will be the Saudi Data and the Artificial Intelligence Authority, yes, the AIA, for the initial two years of the law. The PDPL anticipates that responsibility will eventually be transferred to the National Data Management Office, the NDMO, but does not commit to this happening. So just what are the differences and similarities between GDPR and PDPL? So if you the similarities first, the data protection rights, the PDPL confers new data rights on data owners similar to those contained under GDPR. 
These rights include the right to be informed about how personal data will be processed, obtain access to personal data, and the right to request correction and deletion of personal data. It also has a number of data protection principles, similar to Article 5 of GDPR. PDPL introduces data protection principles for controlling entities to follow. A good example of that is that personal data must be appropriate and limited to what's necessary for the processing in hand at that time. It also introduces the concept of a personal data privacy policy. Prior to the collection of personal data, individuals must be provided with a personal data privacy policy detailing the purposes of processing, collection methods and data rights. This document would be familiar to anyone with Article 13 and 14 GDPR Data Protection Notice. Again, as per GDPR, there has to be a legal basis for processing data and data can only be processed where there's a lawful basis to do so. However, potential legal basis under PDPR appear to be more narrow than GDPR. For instance, there is no controller's legitimate interest basis in PDPL. Like GDPR, PDPL is also extraterritorial. The extraterritorial provisions of PDPL are arguably broader reaching than those in GDPR, although routes to enforcement against overseas businesses are not clear at this time. And then finally, there's data breaches. And just like GDPR, PDPL says that the authority must be notified of data breaches. This must be done immediately, and there's no qualitative threshold in relation to the seriousness of the breach. The implementing regulations will define in what circumstances data subjects will need to be notified of a data breach. Looking for a moment at extraterritorial scope, the PDPL applies to any entity located outside of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia who is processing the personal data of individuals residing in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. No particular quantitative threshold or qualitative threshold is set out. This broader territorial scope in GDPR which only applies to non-EU established entities who are engaged in targeting offering goods or services to or monitoring EU or UK individuals. There's also strong emphasis in PDPL on consent. With very limited exceptions, personal data cannot be processed or the purpose of processing be changed without the consent of the data owner, i.e. the data subject. Data subject consent is not required where the processing achieves a definite or certain interest to the data owner and it's impossible or difficult to contact them, or it's required by law or an application of a prior agreement to which the data owner is a party, similar to performance of a contract under GDPR, or the processing is done by a public entity and such processing is required for security processes or to meet judicial requirements. Again, similar to GDPR, particularly to UK GDPR. So for most businesses and most day-to-day operations, the only two bases you rely to process the data of someone from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is either consent or that you're performing a contract. So if you're in any pre-contractual stage, you'll have to gain consent because that clearly you don't have contractual approval at that time. So what about the transfer of data into and out of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? The PDPL in Article 29 prohibits the transfer of disclosure of personal data outside of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, except in very limited circumstances. These limited circumstances include where the transfer is absolutely necessary to preserve the life or vital interest of the data owner outside of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, or to prevent, diagnose or treat infections, so presumably that would cover things like COVID-19, or in implementation of an obligation under a convention to which the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is a party, or for serving the best interest of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, or for other purposes that may be determined by implementing regulations. Even where one of those circumstances applies, there are further provisos which must also be satisfied, including the transfer does not affect the national security or vital interest of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Sufficient guarantees for protection and confidentiality of the personal data must be provided to at least the standard required by the PDPL and the implementing regulator. 
The transfer must be restricted to the minimum personal data required and the authority must approve the transfer according to the implementing regulations. It should be borne in mind here that infringement of this article, Article 29, is a criminal offence. Again, similar to GDPR, controlling entities will have to register with and pay a fee to the authority. However, in stark contrast to GDPR, controlling entities under PDPL are required to upload their record of data processing activities, i.e. Their, their Section 30 report, and other necessary documents or information relating to the processing of personal data to an electronic portal managed by the authority. One other thing which is under PDPL is that sensitive personal data may not be processed for marketing purposes. And under PDPL, sensitive data is data which refers to ethnic or tribal origin, religion, intellectual or political beliefs, membership of societies or non-government organisations, criminal record, biometric data, genetic data, credit data, house data, location data and data that reveals that the person has unknown parents. The prohibition of the use of location data for marketing purposes would seem to render unlawful the use of marketing push notifications by mobile phone apps. It should be noted as well that PDPL is silent on the idea of cookies. Article 33 of PDPL provides that the authority should be responsible for issuing licenses to commercial, professional or non-profit businesses under PDPL. However, it does not especially state what, if any, additional licenses a business will need to obtain in order to process personal data. In a similar way to the EU and the UK, if your business is based outside the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and you don't have a permanent place of business within the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but you're dealing with the data and potentially have clients from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, then you need to appoint an agent within the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Given its similarity to GDPR and the many rules contained within PDPL, it's perhaps a surprise that it doesn't contain any requirement for a company or organisation to actually appoint a data protection officer, whether that's internal or external. Although, because of the complexity, but because of its similarity to GDPR, I suspect that many organisations in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will be looking to appoint a data protection officer, either internally amongst their own staff or externally using a consultant like ourselves. And we mentioned that there were criminal sanctions. Well, along with introducing fines of up to £590,000 for disclosure or publication of sensitive data in breach of PDPL and up to £200,000 for breaches of data transfer rules, offenders under PDPL can be criminally prosecuted for a prison term not exceeding two years where sensitive data is disclosed or published contrary to PDPL. The PDPL also introduces a general fine of approximately £1 million for any violation of PDPL. So it's obviously crucial that if you are a business in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that you start taking notice of PDPL and start planning for its implementation now. If you'd like our help with implementing PDPL, then please do contact us using the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com And finally this week, we return to the issue of EU standard contractual clauses. The European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, previously announced that they were working on guidance to clarify the interplay between the GDPR territorial scope, or rather the extraterritorial scope, and the GDPR's rules on international transfers. In its recently published minutes, the EDPB indicated that after the guidance is adopted, the European Commission will develop a specific set of standard contractual clauses regarding transfers to importers subject to GDPR, i.e. importers within the EU, and presumably importers in countries which have been deemed to be adequate, although the minutes aren't clear on that. We also expect that the EDPB will confirm that a transfer to a data importer already subject to GDPR is a restricted transfer regulated by Chapter 5 of GDPR. 
This interpretation is also consistent with the preferred position taken by the ICO here in the UK during its consultation on the UK Standard Contractual Clauses, which closed on the 7th of October. And of course, we await the update from the ICO on that consultation as to just what will be in the UK Standard Contractual Clauses. Until then, we are all stuck using the EU Standard Contractual Clauses. So from the noises from the EDPB, we think it's fair to say that there will be two sets of the new Standard Contractual Clauses, one applicable to importers who are not subject to GDPR, and the other applicable to importers who are subject to GDPR to be developed by the European Commission. So the ones who aren't part of the EU, we've already got the Standard Contractual Clauses for, they're the ones that the EDPB signed off earlier this year. But we don't yet have the wording for the ones which fall inside the EU. We anticipate that the new standard contractual clauses for data transfers within the EU will include a lighter touch approach to obligations on the data importer, given that the importer will already be subject directly to GDPR and will likely focus on regulating conduct in the case of requests by public authorities. The EDPB statements come at an interesting time for business who are still grappling with transfer impact assessments and managing their transition to the new standard contractual clauses. Businesses engaging in cross-border transfers of European data should keep a close eye on EDPB and the ISO's guidance and be prepared to review their data transfer strategy. And indeed, we anticipate for our own clients that companies who are implementing the EU standard contractual clauses at the moment, because we have to, will be looking to need to rewrite some clauses in those contracts when the UK standard contractual clauses become available from the ICO. But as yet, we don't have a definite time scale for when that will happen. But we will, of course, keep you updated right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. And if you need any help with standard contractual clauses in whichever form, then please do reach out to us using the contact details that are coming up at the end of this article. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time, bye-bye.